Welcome to the Ed Up Worldwise podcast, a take on education, culture, and migration. I'm your host, Rajika Pandari. This podcast is inspired by my recent book, America Calling a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility, which made me realize the fundamental role that education, particularly higher education, or our colleges and universities have played in connecting the world. These connections have become even more important over the past several years as countries and individuals have increasingly turned inward and away from each other. Conversations about why education is important in opening our hearts and minds to the world have never been more important. Join me each week as we go behind the scenes for illuminating and deeply personal conversations with diverse global voices international students, international education experts, migrants and immigrants, authors and artists, as we explore our common threads and the varied ways in which the world connects through education. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is very special to me because I get to talk about two of my favorite topics, the history and evolution of the field of international education, and also the important role of leadership and mentoring in our field. My guest today is someone who has been at the forefront of our field, helping shape numerous programs and guiding generations of international education professionals in their work. For many, Peggy Blumenthal needs no introduction, but for those who don't know her, she currently serves as the Senior Counselor to the President of the Institute of International Education, or IIE. And this role follows over three decades of senior leadership service at the Institute and in our sector, and for which she has also received the AIEA Charles Klesik Award for Outstanding Service to the Field of International Higher Education. In today's episode, Peggy and I have a wide-ranging conversation about how she views the field of international education from where she sits, the long history and importance of educational exchanges between China and the US, the escalating refugee crisis in Ukraine, and how organizations like IIE have helped rescue scholars and students since the 1920s. And last, but certainly not the least, Leadership Lessons for Women. Peggy, I am so delighted to have you on because many years ago, our roles were reversed where you had me in the interview chair, interviewing me for a job. And today, well, I don't want to say the tables are turned, but I have the absolute privilege of welcoming you on and having you in the interview seat where I uh, I just have to say that this is one of the conversations on this show that I am most excited about because um, your uh, your uh, having you as a colleague uh, and your collegiality in the field and having you as a mentor has just uh, meant the world to me. So welcome to the EDAP Worldwise podcast. Thanks so much, Rajak. And I'm delighted to be here. And I'm delighted that our first interview over the phone went so well and that we were able to be colleagues at IIE for so many years. 
Thank you so much. So, you know, you've been um, one of the senior most leaders in our field with over 30 years of, excuse me, 30 years of service at IIE alone. And of course, many of our listeners know you, but for those who don't, many of IIE's largest initiatives in recent years were in fact implemented under your leadership as the organization's executive vice president and chief operating officer. So given all of your vast experience, I can't think of anyone better with whom to talk about our field and profession. So um, let me just, you know, kick this, kick this conversation off with what I know is a very broad question, and which is that how have things changed in international education over the past decade what's remained the same what's changed and again i know this is very broad so you know please feel free to tackle it from whichever angle seems to make sense to you sure well let me uh just say that what has remained the same is that the kind of people who choose as a career international education tend to still be the same people who are uh, fiercely committed to uh, communication across boundaries, who are fiercely committed to opening young people's eyes to the rest of the world and, and opening their hearts to other uh, uh, cultures and other individuals and other ways of seeing the world. Um, what has changed, I think, is the composition of both the international uh, exchange professionals and the people who have the opportunity to study in another country. Um, certainly, we've seen a, a rapid uh, still not satisfactory, but rapid progress in diversifying the opportunities for Americans to study abroad. And I mean diversifying uh, both in terms of uh, the ethnicity and background uh, and economic status of the young Americans studying abroad, but also diversity in the fields. I mean, one of the, one of the programs I'm most proud of at, at IIE was the creation of the Global Engineering Education Exchange, which really made it possible both financially and also in terms of academic progress for uh, American engineering students to study abroad for more than just you know, a summer. It was for a semester, an academic year, uh, and thousands have gone through that program successfully and come home and gotten credit for their work in the engineering field. Um, but also, I think the diversity of the uh, profession itself, uh, we see much more um, uh, range of individuals uh, going into the field and succeeding in the field and becoming leaders in the field, which is great, uh, I think, because it gives uh, young people a, a model to uh, look at and, and also uh, provides mentors in a wide range of, um, of uh, fields. Uh, the other thing I would say is the uh, prestige of the uh, senior international officer. Uh, certainly when I came into the field, um, which was only more like 40 years ago than 30 years ago, starting at Stanford way back when as the uh, uh, assistant director of overseas studies, um, pretty much you were kind of isolated. You know, faculty didn't really care about talking with you very much unless they were going to get a chance to study abroad or, or escort people abroad. Um, but now the senior international officer very often reports to the provost, uh, very often has a, a, a role in the president's cabinet, uh, really sets strategy for the university in, or college in terms of their international relationships, not just trying to promote study abroad or trying to manage international recruitment. 
So maybe I, I, one more thing I guess I should add, the most recent change, of course, has been since COVID hit, there's been a huge expansion of virtual exchanges, um, which are no substitute in any way for the actual experience of living abroad, but which certainly help provide international experiences for the large number of students who will never be able to study abroad for financial reasons, for academic reasons, for a whole host of family obligations. So the, the spread of international uh, online experiences, I think, is really going to continue uh, even after uh, we no longer have to worry about crossing borders with carrying COVID. Um, and it also, I think, will help um, uh, internationalize the whole space at the university for um, uh, changing the curriculum in innovative ways. All such wonderful points, Peggy, and so much to unpack there. And actually, I'll just mention that um, the annual meeting of AIEA, which is, of course, uh, the, the association or body of uh, senior international officers that you just spoke about, just concluded its annual conference uh, some days ago. And indeed, you're absolutely right that um, the idea of a senior role dedicated to internationalization is now front and center for institutions playing um, a key, uh, playing a really key role in their strategy and uh, decision making. And, and thank you for pointing out the global, uh, global E cube, is it? Is that, mm -hmm. that's, that's right. It. Yeah, and which is so important um, because uh, in fact, at the AIA conference, uh, the opening keynote was by the new director of the National Science Foundation. And he spoke so evocatively about how important it is for science and engineering to be truly global. And indeed, Global E-Cube uh, embodies uh, exactly that uh, idea. So, uh, I'm curious about your own journey and moments of cultural exchange and transformation. And take us back to that time when you were a young woman and went to China for the first time. What did it feel like for you to be immersed in a culture that was so different from your own and yet one that you were studying about? And uh, are there any key moments or episodes that come to mind that you're willing to share with us or things that were particularly eye-opening? And I will just say for our listeners, my first introduction to China was through you and with you when we were together on a business trip to China. So tell us more about uh, your own journey and uh, your first exposure to China. Uh, happily, we'll do that. Um, actually, I my first uh, immersion in Chinese culture was uh, as a freshman in college um, before I started studying Chinese. Actually, uh, I was accompanying my parents who my father had gotten a fellowship to teach at uh, Taiwan National University to start a, a pediatric cardiology program. And the China Medical Board said, you know, we'll pay for family to go too. And I said, I'm, I definitely I'm going. Uh, at the time, colleges, this was back in 1963, and colleges were not so uh, enthusiastic about study abroad, or at least uh, Radcliffe was not so enthusiastic about study abroad. And basically they said, I couldn't go. Uh, I would have to drop out of school. I said, I'm, I'm out of here. That's fine with me. Uh, I spent a uh, three months in Taiwan and another two months uh, going around the world, coming home the slow way, uh, uh, going west through um, Middle East and, and Europe and so on. It was amazing. Um, first of all, uh, not only was I in, uh, engaged deeply with the Chinese culture, but 
martial law was still in existence in Taiwan. This was not, this was only less than 20 years from the end of the um, World War II and the fleeing of the uh, uh, Chinese nationalist government to Taiwan. So most Americans don't ever live under martial law. It is quite a sobering experience and it is quite um, painful to watch people whose land has basically in their mind, been invaded um, by another form of government. Um, they had lived, Taiwan had lived for many years under Japanese occupation. So this was a, a second occupation. And I began to see how uh, people around the world felt after, uh, particularly in the uh, East, and, and this is a moment to think about Ukraine, of course, uh, people who had survived the Nazi uh, occupation and then had the Russian occupation and then were fighting for their freedom. And I think in many ways, Taiwan has uh, gone that same journey um, and has uh, been occupied for many years by the Japanese, then uh, by the uh, nationalist government, and now is a fiercely independent um, place to live. Um, I love the Taiwanese people. I loved Chinese food. Before I went to China, I was a very picky eater, and then I discovered how good food could really taste. <laughs> All the great chefs of China uh, fled to Taiwan and opened up restaurants. Um, and I and I love the. Um, getting to know a culture that was very different from mine, but that the people's basic um, values, their basic uh, family relationships, their, their commitment to um, each other uh, and, and to seeing their young people succeed through education. These were all things that um, as a uh, American and particularly as a Jewish American, I could relate to, um, you know, the, the we'll sacrifice everything so long as our kids can get into a good college uh, mentality. Um, the one other thing, uh, I guess the embarrassing thing I learned, I started to study Chinese before I went and uh, took a, a semester, at, uh, my freshman semester at uh, Radcliffe in uh, Chinese language, but I was not very good, of course. And, and what I learned is as soon as you are plunged into an entirely uh, uh, foreign environment, you learn to speak so much better than sitting in the classroom with the headsets on. Um, I didn't learn to speak well enough, apparently, because I we had a, a pedicab driver who kind of assigned to us and, and we I rode around the city with him, talking to him in Chinese because he didn't speak in English. And apparently um, my use of the Chinese was unsophisticated enough that he thought we had made some kind of a, a agreement to um, become married and for him to get to come to the New York United States with me. <laughs> so whatever I was saying or whatever tones I was using were apparently not quite uh, up to the standard that I later realized was necessary. Uh, so that's the embarrassing part. Um, also maybe embarrassing in that I saw a, a large part of the American military presence in Taiwan. At that time, it was heavily uh, supported by the US military and USAID. And seeing Americans pick up their culture and plop it into another country and have a PX through which they could get any you know, peanut butter for, for, for a dime or so to get alcohol extremely cheap, uh, to see the women, and it was mostly women's spouses, you know, with nothing to do, sitting around on their, uh, trying to find things to entertain themselves. It was, um, it was painful. And I think I uh, began to appreciate what the American military presence, which does amazing, wonderful things in many countries, also much feel like to the native looking uh, at the interloper sitting in a beautifully manicured compound with lots of uh, free privileges. That was a, a lesson I also took with me. That is such a profound um, observation, Peggy, what you just said. And actually, 
I have in the past five minutes just learned so much about you that I had no idea about. We've known each other now for about 17 or 18 years, worked so closely alongside each other. I actually never knew of your history and exposure to Taiwan. So this is absolutely eye-opening for me. And uh, the other thing I think it really reveals is, and you know, um, a lot of the research and study abroad has shown this, that uh, for people who really end up in global careers or in international education, and as you said at the outset of the conversation, that it takes a certain type of person, I think we know that it's that early exposure where the where the global bug almost bites you where it, it's you know it's in you for the rest of your life and certainly your career has uh, been a testament um to that so let's uh, stick with china uh, for a minute and um, you know as as uh, what uh, with what you're saying and of course based on all of your accomplishments you're clearly an expert on china starting from the time of your undergraduate degree which was in modern chinese history and when we work together, and even now you are the go-to resource uh, at uh, IIE to understand the broader context of student flows between the US and China. So I can't have you on this show and not use the opportunity to ask you what your take is on the current sentiment amongst Chinese families and students about studying in the US. And you know, just a minute ago, you shared, you shared that beautiful point about the idea of global aspiration and what families want for their children, regardless of uh, you know, where, they, where they live. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and where you see us right now in, uh, in all of this. Yes, well, I think um, it's certainly true that around the world, uh, every family wants the best for their uh, young people and wants them to succeed. Um, I think the Chinese uh, tradition has been um, to look uh, abroad for new ideas, for um, uh, future success, um, particularly, uh, I think, today uh, in China, uh, parents are still very committed, if they can afford to, to give their child the best opportunity uh, for education and for advancement. Uh, and more and more of them are able to afford it. Uh, and that's why we saw the huge growth uh, that Open Doors tracked so well of Chinese undergraduates coming abroad. When I was uh, back at working at Stanford uh, in the uh, late 70s, and early 80s, it was entirely graduate students and visiting scholars who came from China. Uh, and now, actually, undergraduates have surpassed graduate students uh, in terms of the representation of uh, students from China. Uh, and I think it's going to continue. I know there was a period when everyone was saying, oh, well, they're not going to want to come anymore. Uh, the previous uh, administration uh, was not that friendly to uh, China and is not that welcoming to Chinese students. And now I think that the Biden administration has sent out a different message. Uh, the recent uh, explicit ending of the China initiative uh, is another very important signal that Chinese are not uh, being targeted because they're Chinese, uh, but that they are the possibilities for um, uh, stolen um, 
technology or stolen uh, international property is one that is uh, shared by uh, many countries, governments officially and, and individuals unofficially, um, and that, that the China initiative has now been merged into a broader national security initiative looking across the globe. Uh, so yes, I think uh, Chinese parents still want their uh, young people to study abroad. The United States still remains the destination of choice. Um, we've seen it in surveys like the College Board did recently, but we've also seen it every time the British Council or the Australian um, government does a survey of, of destinations of choice, pretty much the United States uh, still comes out as the destination of choice for quality, uh, for access, for financial possibilities. You know, other countries seem um, safer uh, in their minds of the students who are watching way too much uh, TV <laughs> and movies to, to, to really understand American culture. Um, but American campuses are clearly um, out, reaching out, continuing to reach out to Chinese students, continuing to put the message out that uh, campuses are a safe space, that are a space that, that uh, values um, diversity. Uh, and I think that Chinese students will continue to come. And as uh, we've already seen a, a slight rebounding, and once the uh, COVID um, restrictions on leaving China uh, and going to China, once those are, are completely um, uh, gone, we'll see traffic in both directions again in terms of student flows. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. And, you know, that's that's sort of the case I make in my book as well, that that appeal of the made in America brand is uh, incredibly enduring. And we've really seen it sustain over so many years and, and really over a couple of centuries. Um, and actually, let me say one mm -hmm. more thing, because you mentioned a couple of centuries. There have been uh, more than a century of exchanges interrupted, of course, from 1949 to 1979. But uh, I recently read in, the, in, uh, in a New York Times report that there are uh, over, over 6.5 million Chinese have studied uh, abroad uh, since 79. Uh, and the majority of those, it doesn't say so in the Times report, but I'm confident when we look at our figures, have come to the United States. So now you have close to 7 million alumni, uh, and maybe let's say conservatively 4 million of them from US institutions. Many of them have stayed here, many of them have gone home, but all of them will be um, uh, talking to their families about what, and their friends about the uh, profoundly important and, and uh, inspiring uh, experience they had in the US higher education. So that's the best recruiting device we will ever have. I mean, I, there's been a growth of uh, third party agents and there's been a growth in uh, electronic uh, recruitment, but there is nothing like uh, the, the alumni network that we have that will uh, help um, keep that flow of Chinese students wanting to come here. Absolutely. They're the unofficial ambassadors, right? Right. Who work alongside formal diplomats and uh, ambassadors. Yeah. And thank you for that historical perspective. And, you know, when I was um, conducting research for my book, I learned so much about uh, Jung Wing, who was, in fact, 
the very first international sort of documented international student in the US to come to the country in the 1800s to study at Yale. And in fact, his, uh, his grave is in a cemetery right here in, in Connecticut. And he went on to found the, as you know, the Chinese educational mission. So absolutely, I think the connection to China um, goes back, uh, goes so far back and really surmounts uh, periods in history that have not, that, that have not necessarily <laughs> been friendly towards either country, but I think uh, exchanges have really endured. And speaking of history, this is a really good segue um, about something that I want to talk to you about now. When I began working on my book, I realized that my understanding of our field was short-sighted and that even though I was supposedly someone who studied current trends, my own understanding of uh, so many pivotal moments in the history of international education and uh, diplomacy for the US were limited. And one such episode was uh, the African airlift, but there's so many others that we don't um, know about or talk, or talk about often enough. now. Given your vast knowledge in this area, what are some moments that, or key moments that you think we should be aware of? Well, let me uh, just stick to the part of the world that I know best, which is China. And I think uh, that the more I learned, the more I studied Chinese history formally, and also the more I uh, got engaged with the uh, Chinese American community here in New, in New York City, uh, I learned how far back our uh, exchanges with China really went. And certainly you're right about uh, uh, Yung Wing and his uh, being the first international student and first Chinese student at Yale. Um, I kept hearing about that all the time, but it goes back even further than that. It goes back to the American missionary movement uh, in China. And China was one of the major places that American missionaries went. And they went primarily not to proselytized like the um, Jesuits did or like the uh, other, uh, the Spanish uh, missionaries in, in Latin America, they went to set up schools, they went to set up hospitals. Uh, I mean, they were proselytizing in the sense that they were hoping to uh, have people uh, come to embrace Christianity, but they did it a different way. And they did it through um, this uh, public service facing lens. So Chinese students started studying in American uh, modeled schools and American taught schools, you know, over a hundred years ago. And those missionary schools, you know, were elementary schools, high schools, and ended up being universities, colleges that after 1949 uh, became the leading higher education institutions in China, uh, Beijing University, Fudan University, uh, Sun Yat-sen University, all of these started as missionary uh, schools. Um, so you have a, a tradition both of Chinese uh, achievers wanting to go to an American style education and also American families who had supported all these missionary efforts. So a, a large wellspring of welcome and of interest in Chinese young people and wanting to help them succeed. Uh, so then I then we cut to the Boxer Rebellion. This may get too much in the weeds for many of your viewers, but there was a, during the Qing Dynasty, there was a, a, a rebellion led by um, people who wanted to overthrow the 
uh, the uh, emperor, and also were very anti-Western uh, because the, the West had essentially occupied large areas of uh, the Chinese seacoast and were getting uh, the, the Europe and the US had, had privileges that they uh, were um, not uh, respectful of Chinese civilization. Um, so the Boxer Rebellion, which failed, um, destroyed a lot of um, US properties in China, a lot of Western properties in China. And in the settlement of that uh, war, the, U the Chinese government became responsible for the uh, indemnity uh, to pay back those uh, governments whose properties had been destroyed in China. Um, and that became the Boxer indemnity in the United States was transformed by Teddy Roosevelt into a scholarship fund. I think just a brilliant move, a sort of the precursor of Fulbright uh, in that he set up, right. uh, he set in motion the possibility for Chinese students in, to come to the United States, to study in the United States, using the money that the Chinese government had to uh, pay back the US government. And his example was followed by a few uh, European countries as well. But you started to see, this is in the early 1920s, large numbers of uh, Chinese coming to the United States on the Boxer Indemnity uh, Fund. Uh, so when we think of the uh, open doors, the first open doors surveys, which were, they weren't called open doors, but they were an annual survey of international students back in 1922, 23, 24. And you see that China is among the top senders and you think, you know, what's that mm -hmm. about? Um, mm -hmm. And it's about the Boxer indemnity and it's about missionary ties to students abroad whom they continue to help uh, support and come to the United States. Yeah, thank you for that. That is a fascinating um, episode in um, in the history of exchanges that I, I, I again think does not uh, probably receive enough uh, attention and really links to um, so many things. And I know you mentioned um, Ukraine earlier and sort of bringing it, you know, fast forward to what we are seeing now. And again, all of these uh, these aspects are so connected and, you know, we're currently seeing a terrible situation unfolding. We already know that there are hundreds and thousands of refugees at the border. We know what these situations do to education and often, um, you know, create a whole generation of refugees who've uh, lost their, their educational opportunities. Now, you've been in this field for so long, and I wonder if you can speak to how our field has responded to similar global events and uh, situations in the past. Uh, well, it's such a big topic and, I, and maybe I'll just speak to it from the point of view of uh, the Institute of International Education, where, as you say, I've been for uh, actually over 35 years. It just seems impossible to me that it's been that long because it just went by in the blink of an eye. Um, but. Uh, IIE, which was created in uh, 1919, uh, right after World War I, uh, really uh, was founded on the principle that education can help us um, expand world peace, avoid war. Uh, a very ambitious goal and maybe not entirely fulfilled, but certainly it expanded the opportunities for people from all around the world to study in the United States and to promote even more. Actually, its original mission was promoting Americans to study abroad and get to know the rest of the world. Um, so right from the beginning, it was dealing with um, refugee situations and trying to respond to refugee situations. And, and as I read our history, I realized that in the uh, in 
1921-22, we were trying to help uh, Russian emigres who had fled from the commu uh, communist revolution, successful communist revolution in Russia, to come and, and uh, find safe academic spaces in the United States. Uh, World War II, uh, helping Chinese, again, come to st study in the United States, and many other refugees. Uh, Edward R. Murrow, who was our assistant director in the 1930s, getting his start in the international field, I must say, as a, a recent college graduate, uh, helped um, uh, staff the effort to bring, uh, it used, first of all, it was displaced uh, German Jewish scholars, but it broadened out into many different scholars from many parts of Europe uh, being rescued, uh, finding placements for them in U.S. universities where they became, were able to teach and continue their uh, research, uh, indeed creating departments and creating uh, the new school uh, in New York, uh, these, these refugee scholars from, uh, from Europe. Um, and then it goes straight through it. it you know, the, the Hungarian revolution produced uh, refugees that the IIE helped welcome to the United States and, and got student placements for them uh, through the 70s, the 80s. I mean, there was always a crisis somewhere that required rescue efforts. Um, and uh, IIE launched something called the uh, Scholar Rescue Fund, uh, launched it explicitly, but it had been going on for decades before. Mm -hmm. The difference is it launched it with an endowment that meant you didn't have to hustle around and try to find money in an emergency. You actually had a pot of money that you could use to try to rescue people. And, and recently, it, when it started, it was uh, largely students from various war-torn uh, countries of Africa. Um, now, then it became heavily Iraqis and Iranians and Syrians. And now, of course, we're seeing uh, Ukrainians and, and others uh, who need to be um, saved. We also used uh, created something which I uh, was very uh, pleased to see happen, which to create a fund to help students, international students in the mm -hmm. United States, whose countries were going through a catastrophe, either political or uh, climate related, uh, to be able to stay in the United States and continue their studies and, and get a degree. Rather, uh, because the money was completely blocked at home, they would otherwise either have to drop out uh, unable to pay their tuition, uh, go into the kind of the cultural underground because you can't stay legally as a student if you're not enrolled, or try to get home and help their country when they could actually better serve their country by finishing their degree, going home with an actual set of tools and training experience. Uh, so we started the um, Emergency Student Fund. Um, it uh, has helped, uh, I, I think, couple of million dollars have been uh, uh, sent out through that fund. And it's just recently we've put out a call for uh, US colleges and universities to nominate Ukrainian students or any student in, uh, in, uh, who came from Ukraine to study in the United States and is now no longer able to access the funds to remain here. Um, so, you know, I remember when it was the uh, Haiti Emergency Student Fund, when it was the uh, uh, Tohoku Japan Emergency Student Fund, when it was uh, each country that had a crisis, we were able to respond. Um, and so I'm, I'm delighted to see that. Uh, also, I think they've recently started the uh, I started something called the Odyssey Scholarship, which is for students who are refugees already and need funding support to continue their education, because this whole uh, generation of, of young people in refugee camps around the world. Again, we're wasting a, a hugely valuable resource. And so the Odyssey Scholarship, again, is designed to help 
uh, outstanding students who are currently refugees, who may not have the documentation that they need. They may not have their transcript. They may not have their, uh, be able to get letters of reference from their, their uh, professors, but find them uh, places in the higher education system globally. Yeah, and we should um, just, uh, I should note for our listeners and that um, according to Open Doors, I believe there are 2000 students from Ukraine currently studying um, in the US. And of course, in the past uh, few days, we've seen a groundswell of support from campuses, from organizations like IIE and uh, really the, the entire sector coming together to um, to aid um, Ukrainian students and scholars. And I can't help but note that every time we see these situations happen, international students often get caught in the crossfire. So of course, Ukrainian students here in the US are directly affected. But even back in Ukraine, there are many stories coming out of uh, students from Africa, students from India being um, trapped in Ukraine and uh, trying to flee. And um, as, a, as, a, as someone who studies these trends, I can't help but note that we often talk about how other countries are becoming key destinations. And uh, indeed, Ukraine is actually a big destination for students who want to study medicine and attract students from uh, all over the world. And those students are now um, trying to figure out uh, what, what to do. So Peggy, we, as we approach the end of our conversation, I wanna come back to you and uh, your leadership. And you've not only been a leader in the field of international education, but you've been a role model and mentor for many women in the field, whether or not you realized it, but many of us have seen you as a role model and mentor. As you see women rise within organizations, what are some things that you wish they would do differently? Or to put it another way, what would be your best advice to them? Now, I've been the beneficiary of that uh, advice and mentorship over the years, but I would love to have you share your thoughts with our listeners on uh, some, some key takeaways. Okay, uh, well, uh, it's a big question. Um, I guess the first thing I would uh, say is that women need to stop selling themselves short, stop uh, presenting themselves as uh, an imperfect but eager candidate, uh, because that's not how young men apply for jobs. Uh, we saw that, I mean, every time I, I look at um, applications from uh, uh, young men and young women applying for Fulbright or any other competitive scholarship program that requires foreign language competence, you see young women who may have studied for three years uh, in a foreign language say, you know, moderately competent. And you see young men who may have studied for one year say almost fluent. Uh, <laughs> and there's a big, and in fact, the reality is probably flipped. Uh, women tend to undersell themselves. Women tend to apologize for their lack of training in somewhere. And I think you just need to be bold and you need to be self-confident. And if you're not 
self-confident, you need to learn to act self-confident uh, because that, it turns out, goes a long way toward persuading others and even persuading yourself. Um, I, uh, I think back on, it was a long time before I could get a job in the China field because when I got out of college, there was no relation, there were no relations with China and there was no ability to um, work in the US-China field. But by 1972, uh, I was uh, found an organization called the National Committee on US-China Relations, which was looking at the time for someone who was a fluent Chinese speaker, um, understood US public education uh, and had uh, preferably taught at a high school level because we were trying to introduce the um, just understanding of China uh, through, the, uh, through the high schools, uh, preferably someone who knew curriculum. I was not a, Chinese, a fluent Chinese speaker. I was not a high school teacher and I knew very little about US uh, curriculum. Uh, so when I met the uh, official who was interviewing me, I said, Actually, what you really need is someone who can communicate. And I just spelled out my strengths and things. And I told them the kinds of things that one uh, could do in the field using uh, my talents. And he ended up hiring me. Um, and I worked for several years at the National Committee on US-China Relations. And that really began my uh, career in international education and in international exchange. Um, second thing I would say is, volunteer for everything, particularly if you're in a large organization. It's not enough to just stay in your lane. It's very important to get to understand the whole organization. Um, a wonderful um, example of that was a, a young man who you and I knew well when he started at IIE, Daniel Obst, uh, who is now the president of the AFS International. And he, uh, everybody loved him and, every, and he grew so much as an individual because whenever there was a project and we need a volunteer as Daniel's hand was the first one up and he learned about everything and he grew as a professional and he's now, I think, one of our, our uh, stars in the field. Um, and then finally, I might just say, um, uh, learn to uh, be a, a counselor, as you say, a mentor to others, as well as to seek out good mentors for yourself. I mean, it does, no, I don't, you know, I probably don't know the people I was uh, a mentor to, and some of them I was probably setting a bad example as well as a good example, but it's <laughs> very important to build up uh, others around you, and particularly other women around you who, um, who may not uh, be as fearless, or at least may not act as fearlessly as I over the years learned to act, whether or not I was actually fearless. I guess one more story I would tell is uh, uh, when I was in between jobs back right out of college, uh, the opportunity arose to be a um, evaluator of VISTA programs. VISTA was the Volunteers for Service in America, and they needed people to volunteer to go, I mean, not to volunteer, a paid position to go out and evaluate those projects. And they asked if I had a driver's license. And of course, I said, of course, I have a driver's license, even though I'd grown up in New York and never driven before. <laughs> so by then, so I immediately started taking driving lessons. I'm still a terrible driver. But luckily, most of the VISTA projects were way out, like at, on a uh, reservation or in a, a Appalachia or in very places where you didn't see very much traffic on the road, so I didn't actually have any major uh, problems driving at 20 miles an hour. Uh, but you have to be a little bit bold and a little bit fearless uh, if you want to succeed. I love that story. That is really, really funny. Well, I will actually add two more to that list. Maybe they pick up on uh, points you've already made, but two things that I learned from you. One was being really persistent 
but being persistent with a great deal of diplomacy and tact. So that is something I absolutely learned from you. And the second, which actually is the most important is, you, it, this is something you used to always tell me as I was sort of growing and evolving in my career at IIE, which was that don't assume a no until someone actually says a no. And I have really taken that to heart, Peggy. And I, I find that especially in the past couple of years, as I I've made this personal and professional pivot from being uh, a nonprofit leader to now kind of being doing my own thing and being um, um, a solopreneur and entrepreneur. I find that I'm having to exercise that principle all the time, especially when it comes to marketing and publicity and pushing one's book out that, you know, don't assume a no, and you know what's you know what's the worst case that'll happen? Someone will say a no, but at least you've given them a chance to say a no, as opposed to not even trying. So that's that for me was one of the biggest um, lessons I learned while working closely uh, with you. So. My final question to you is, you've influenced and mentored so many of us in the field. Who has influenced you the most in your life and career? Oh my goodness, there have been so many wonderful uh, influences. Uh, and, and I think particularly of uh, four uh, men who hired me uh, when there was really not particularly a, a reason to assume, well, three, there was no reason to assume I would be appropriate. And, and the last one uh, who forgave me uh, and, and helped to promote my career. And uh, at first, when I, um, I worked for a while for the uh, JDR Third Fund, which is John D. Rockefeller III, who in his, uh, uh, late in his career decided that it was important. This was the 1970s and there was a huge gap and mistrust between uh, business leaders and young people. And he created something called the Business Youth Task Force. And we went, we picked a country, I mean, I'm sorry, a US city. And we went and we met businessmen and we met youth leaders and we put them together in a, in a nice room for a, a week or so until they came up with a project that they wanted to do together. And it was so wonderful. And I thought that, uh, and JDR III, of course, was a, a very special kind of a philanthropist. He was a risk taker. He was not afraid of um, what people might think of him, but he was also incredibly humble. And I remember we were, my first trip with him was to San Francisco, where we had to set up a program. And I, I put him into a not very elegant hotel because we didn't want to look like we were spending too much money. And he never did like to flaunt money. Um, and uh, I get a phone call and uh, I pick up the phone uh, our first night and someone says, um, um, hi, Peggy, it's, uh, it's your colleague from the 56th floor. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what? Well, Rockefeller, Rockefeller's offices were on the 56th floor of uh, 30 Rock. And he didn't know whether to say it's Mr. Rockefeller, which didn't seem quite right. And he didn't want to say it's John, which didn't seem quite right. And he was so humble about, you know, and he could have just said, you know, Peggy left me downstairs and assume I would know about who it was calling. But it, he had a gentleness. And I think that was so important. The, the more powerful you are, the, what I learned is the more uh, humble you should be in dealing with other people and making them feel comfortable. Um, the second exact opposite, Mark Mancall, who was the director of Stanford Overseas Studies at the time, a, an enormous intellect, an enormous Renaissance man, an enormous man physically, who uh, attracted uh, students to him naturally, but the administration and other faculty members just were furious at him. Nine-tenths of the time they were furious at him because he was so bold and he just made big decisions and he decided to close our, our bubble 
international campuses in Cliveden and in the hills of Florence and, and instead make international students, from, uh, make US students from Stanford study in the Sorbonne, in uh, the Free University of Berlin, in uh, integrated into these cultures. And, and what Mark taught me was um, just do it and apologize later if you have to, or in Mark's case, maybe never apologize. <laughs> just do it, uh, sort of pretend you're sorry and wait till the uh, evidence proves that you're right. Um, uh, the third one I can't skip is the man who hired me at the National Committee on US-China Relations, who meant years later, I ended up marrying Douglas Murray, uh, who was just, you know, uh, amazing, amazing as a mentor, amazing as a husband, uh, amazing to others in his field. He mentored so many young people and he did it through a kind of gentleness, a kind of um, uh, servant leader approach, but also a worry ward. And he taught me that it's never too late to try to fix something that's wrong. Uh, he worried about every single detail. Uh, he taught me lessons which uh, I carried on into my um, own life, which is, you know, if a project, even at the very last minute, needs fixing, just fix it. Um, and then finally, Alan Goodman, who um, who didn't hire me at I, who found me at IIE when I was <laughs> when he became president, and who just the most important thing he taught me. Uh, which I still try to learn, but not always practice, is it's listening is more important than talking. Uh, and that Alan, anyone who knows Alan knows he will sit in a room and, and hear every single person in the room's opinions before he ventures his own. And that's an incredibly wise uh, thing to do. Thank you for sharing that, Peggy. Such wonderful um, nuggets of uh, wisdom and hearing about everyone who's influenced you, including, of course, Doug, whose work we often heard about uh, through you. And I, of course, had the pleasure of only meeting him a couple of times. But these are such um, wonderful takeaways in addition to the ones you shared earlier. And uh, I really want to thank you for sharing uh, the such important historical developments in our field and where we are now and bringing all of your expertise and uh, wisdom to today's conversation. And I think I have learned so much about you uh, and I thought I knew everything about you, but clearly I didn't. So this conversation has been just as much um, for my own knowledge and learning as I'm sure it will have been for our listeners. So thank you again, Peggy. My pleasure. And, and thank you for the many years that we worked together so well at IIE. You really, I think, helped transform our research organization and take it to another level. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Rajika Pandari. As always, please like us, follow us, and most importantly, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. All information about the show and show notes are available on my website at www.rajikabhandari.com podcast. And if you'd like to delve more into the sorts of themes we talk about on this show, be sure to get a copy of my new book, America Calling, a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility, available wherever books are sold and through my website. And also subscribe to my newsletter. See you next week when I will be back with another conversation about how education helps open our hearts and minds to the world.